college is freaking expensive. And I know that many of you have questions on affordability and actually just how to save for it. Just like this listener who sent in his question. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. I am really excited to be back with a curbside consult with one of our community members. If you're new here, every once in a while, I receive a question from a listener that I think would make a really fun show to answer. And if you have a question that you would like answered on air, go to financialresidency.com slash question and leave me a voicemail. So I get a lot of inquiries on saving for college and honestly, rightfully so. It's hard to figure out how much you need to save for with costs rising so fast and honestly, each state having a plan to get your investment dollars. I'll explain more of that in a second, but before we jump in, don't press skip. It's time for our important disclaimer. I want you to use this show as educational tool that provides general hints. I only give advice to clients who I actually work with that I know something about. And honestly, I don't think you should take advice from anybody on the internet who doesn't know you or your situation intimately. If you're looking for an advisor to help you walk with you on your journey, go to physicianwealthservices.com and we can definitely talk about that. But until then, talk to your legal tax or your financial advisor to obtain specific advice. Brad called in with our curbside consult. So let's see how we can help him or his listener, I should say, with their consult. Hey, it's Brad from the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. One of my listeners had the following question. Thanks a lot for answering. This is about saving for college. How much should we expect to have to pay per kid for college? For a private school, how much do we need to save per kid per month or per year to be expect to pay for all of that? So let's work backwards. How much do we expect a private school to cost in 18 years? And how much do we need to invest per month starting from birth while accounting for appreciation? And in a similar vein, how do you differ your asset allocation for a shorter timeline, like investing for college, versus a longer timeline, like investing for retirement? Brad, thanks so much for calling in. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. It is a pleasure to highlight you here. Thank you so much for calling in and for your listener for calling in that question to you. And it's really a loaded question, but uh, or questions, I should say, but let's unpack it. The cost of college has been increasing far more rapid pace than inflation. It's becoming pretty ludicrous. I wanted to use an example for our show today of where Taylor and I met. We went to school at University of San Diego, where I received a bachelor's and a couple master's degrees. Clearly, I liked education like all you physicians. And when we went to school, it was still expensive, but way more affordable than when I was digging into the numbers for this show. So USD or University of San Diego cost $47,000. Holy crap, that's a lot of money for tuition only. Room and board, they estimate at 13,000, about 2,000 for books, 3,000 in other living expenses, which I felt was light considering San Diego is really expensive. 
for a grand total of $65,000 a year per year to get basically a four-year degree would cost $260,000 in total. A quarter of a million dollars to get an undergrad degree is insane to me. I was floored by the cost of this because it was half of that when we were going to school. We graduated with our bachelor degrees in 2006 for perspective for people listening. So I went through and I said, okay, we're going to have, let's say, assume a 5% growth in the cost of college, the tuition, room, board, all that stuff. It's going to grow at about 5% a year. Historically, it's been growing much faster than that, but I don't really feel like the costs can really continue to increase that fast. Wage growth just can't keep up with it. And it just seems honestly absurd for the amount of price you're paying to what you're actually receiving. So I went through and Brad, I know you asked to go into the age at 18 years with nothing saved. So we'll do that example. But for estimates and for you know other people who are in different stages of life where maybe their kids are a little bit older, I wanted to throw out, again, some varying costs. And again, using USD, private education, for the example. So an estimated cost five years from now. So a student enrolling in 2024, that's $65,000 if it appreciated or grew at the rate that it we gave it at 5% and it's growing, basically it would be like $89,000 a year, meaning the total cost of education in five years would be three hundred and about 360,000. That's insane that it's increased already another $100,000 in about five years finishing in nine years. If you were to start college and enroll in 2029, it would be on average about 114,000 a year for a total of $460,000 for a four-year degree finishing in 14 years enrolling in 10. The estimated cost if you were having someone enroll 15 years from now, so in 2034, finishing in 2038, about $146,000 a year, which would bring your four-year total to $586,000. And the worst, thinking 18 years out in student enrolling in 2037, finishing in 2041, the average cost, which is what Brad was asking, saving for a private school for 18 years, starting with nothing, it was a newborn, almost $170,000 on average a year for a grand total of a four-year degree, private education, room, board, books, living expenses, the whole nine yards for $675,000. Let that sink in for a second. A four-year degree finishing in 2041, which is about 22 years from now, would cost a grand total of $678,000. I just cannot understand how that would even happen. I still don't think it will happen with that. Uh, This is my crystal ball isn't working. Just a full disclaimer on this one. This is just Ryan's thoughts, not probably what's going to happen. I just don't understand how a four-year degree is actually worth that. I don't think wage growth again is going to be able to cover it. They're going to go into massive amounts of debt and come out and the jobs are going to pay next to nothing. It just, it blows my mind. So to answer part of Brad's question, 
$678,000 for a four-year private school. You can cut this in half if let's say the the public school you might be looking at is, you know, around $30,000 a year, then uh, the total cost for that four-year degree for at a public institution, and this isn't talking scholarships or anything like that, uh, would be about three hundred and you know thirty, three hundred and forty thousand dollars in total for a four-year degree in eighteen to twenty-two years. That's the time that they're enrolled. Still, a ton of money, absolutely ton of money. So if we were to look at it right now, you have a newborn, you have 18 years to save, you have nothing saved up currently, you're going to pick a 529 plan, which I'll explain in just a minute, to invest. It's going to grow tax-free, it's going to come out tax-free. You would need to save about $1,250 a month to be able to pay for a four-year degree per kid. So if you have three kids, say you had triplets, Good luck. I don't even know how people do that, but you'd have three kids going. That's a whole lot of money going, but for one kid, $1,250 a month to pay for a four-year degree. So that was the 18-year. If we're looking at a five-year mark to cover the cost in five years, you had nothing saved. You would need to pull out, you would need to save $2,750 a month. If we were looking at the 10-year scenario, that'd be about $1,900 a month and if you had longer, like 15 years, it'd be about $1,450 a month. Again, you know, if we're looking at the cost of college for a public school that costs $30,000 a year right now, everything included, unlike University of San Diego that we use 65,000, you would need to save about $600 a month in order to pay for a four-year degree in 18 years. So you can tell we're talking about a ton of of money. So that answers a few of Brad's questions. Now let's jump into the savings vehicle that you'd be saving. And this is a 529. Now every state is different. Every Pretty much every state has their own plan. And certain states get benefits if you live in that state and you put money into their 529, you might get a deduction for doing so. It's probably not going to be a lot of money uh, in relation to how much you're realistically saving for that, but it could be. Most of us though, like I live in California, if I put money into California's 529 plan, I receive literally no tax benefit for doing that. So I am free to use any state that I want and I can. there's obviously a lot of different plans out there. And the plan that I have used, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the absolute best for everyone. So again, disclaimer, Personal finance is personal. This is what we have used for our kids. And we use Utah's My529 plan. And we actually use a firm called College Backer, which I had um, Abby Chow on a while back talking about 529 accounts, the benefits of it, how to save for it. And she was one of the co-founders along with Jordan, who will be on the show at some point. Uh, I will bring him on to talk more about college savings and all the fun stuff that goes along with that. But I utilize their firm in order to do that. And College Backer sits on top of Utah's My529. It allows all of us to almost crowdsource or crowdfund our kids' colleges. So the way it works is you go to, you can go to financialresidency.com slash collegebacker. It'll take you there to our co-branded landing page and that you will be able to go and start an account for your child. And once you do that, you will be given a link. So, you know, please don't, you don't need, well, you can if you'd like, but it's not what I'm saying it for. You know, if you go to 
collegebacker.com slash Wyatt. That is where my son's 529 plan kind of sits. And you'll be able to see the landing page that they have. And, and what it does is allows me to give that link to family and friends. So on his, you know, his birthday just uh, came up and, and just passed and we gave, put the link out on the invitation and some people, as opposed to bringing us gifts or bringing him gifts, which he has plenty of stuff and doesn't need it. Uh, they were able to donate 20 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks to his college 529 plan. Now, historically, this has been a giant pain in the rear for anyone to do. And that's why you hear grandparents setting up accounts. And now kids have multiple 529s that, that the grandparents are controlling, the parents controlling one, maybe the other set of grandparents are investing in another. And it gets real confusing real quickly. College Backer has essentially made it very, very easy for someone with either a credit card or an ACH in a, just a few clicks of a button to actually fund the child's education. And this is the part that I love so much about it. You know, it's free to use. Uh, they they do a donation-based payment system, which I'm not a huge fan of. I do give them money because I like their product a ton, but it sits on top of Utah's My 529. And be aware that one of the reasons why I chose Utah is because they have really low fees. Some of these states' plans have insane fees built in. Some of the advisors out there um, actually have, you know, plans that they put clients into that they're charging one or one and a half percent on. We've seen people that have several hundred thousand dollars that are paying their advisor, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 to manage these things when it sits in investments that are um, usually age-based. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the thing I want you guys to be aware of is the fee structures that these 529 plans have. So usually there's two parts to the fee structure. There's the underlying operating expense ratios, which work just as your normal investments do that we've talked about on the show of just seeing how much does it, you know, does the mutual fund or the investment company um, take to keep the lights on to pay the traders and the, and everyone else that kind of works with them. And then there's an administrative asset fee that is charged by the state. And this is what varies so widely. So I went on my 529s. I wanted to, you know, get some information on there so I can say this accurately on the podcast. So the annual fee is charged to your account by my 529 and it's assessed monthly on the balance of the account on the last business day of the month. And their fees range from 0.1% to 0.18%, which is extremely cheap in the 529 market. And what that means in normal terms is it's a dollar or a dollar, anywhere from a dollar to a dollar 80 per $1,000 invested. So pay attention to fees, always pay attention to fees. And these, the 529 plans, the fees range so much that I want you guys to really pay attention to the fees and what you're investing in. And talking about what we're investing in, I just happened to pick one. Now, big disclaimer on this one. This is not what you need to invest in. This is not any advice or anything like that. I literally just picked one to talk about, but there was the aged base guide paths to on my 529. And I decided to pick the aggressive domestic one. So the age-based aggressive domestic investment allocates your entire balance to 
one domestic equity fund. So they keep it simple. They use Vanguard Institutional's total stock market fund, and it's basically invested there. This is again, their, their age. So as you, your child gets older, the investments change. Well, they keep it in that until your beneficiary, your child reaches age seven. Now, once your child is age seven, automatically it is changed to something different. If you don't like that, then you're going to want to go with their static options and control it yourself, which is honestly what I decided to do uh, because I'm in this and I nerd out on this stuff. If you don't want anything really to focus on or to remember or to really check it a ton, which I don't recommend checking any of your investments a ton, then the guide path is probably going to work out best for you. But in this case, so again, back to the age-based option, we're talking about the aggressive domestic option. At age seven, it then gets split into three different investments. They added two fixed income funds to the investment mix. So now you have the total Vanguard institutional total stock market. Cool. And now they added two more, Vanguard's total bond market and Vanguard short-term investment grade fund. So it's made it a little more conservative because now it's not all equities. They have some equities and some bonds. At age 10, it's now going to change again automatically based on the age of the beneficiary or your child. And they add a stable value fund to the portfolio. So they're using PIMCO's interest income fund, which I think is a very interesting choice uh, that Van- that My529 is using. And so now they have four funds that they're invested in starting at age 10. Now, as again, they're getting older, the time horizon starts to shrink because they're going to start to need that money around age 18 or 19. So by the age of 15, they're bringing in FDIC insured accounts that are then added. So now there's another thing. So now we're at five different investments that they're investing in. And each time the investment options are changing, it's becoming more conservative. I'm not going to discuss percentages. You can go on my 529's site, but I wanted to go through how these investment options change. That's again why I just picked one. Now, as the beneficiary continues to get older, this percentage of the account balances allocated to fixed income funds and the stable value fund and these FDIC insured accounts, they increase. And the percentage to the equity fund decreases. Now, when the beneficiary of your child hits age 19, they reduce the amount of exposure to equities. And this is again, open on their website. The account then only has a 10% stake in equities and the remaining is divided between the long-term and short-term fixed income options like the bonds, that stable value fund. And then of course those FDIC insured accounts. And that is fascinating to look at. And I want all of you to understand just how it becomes more conservative. It automatically does that. And that is essentially how you can automate some of these things. So really you have to focus on is just the savings portion, not necessarily the savings and investment options. Huge fan of that. If you want a more simplistic, easy way to do it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing it that way. I just choose to want to be a little more aggressive with the kids money in that case. So I decide to be in the static option and what we're invested in. So hopefully that was able kind of to, to answer some of Brad's questions on uh, the investment options inside, you know, the 529s and why you would want a 529 uh, account. 
And one of the pieces to, to the question that you asked was how the asset allocation really differs between college investments and your normal investments. And I'll take that as kind of like your retirement investments or a taxable account. And I want to make this really, really clear. The college investments for your kids do not impact your net worth. They don't positively increase it. It is essentially money earmarked for future spending. And that spending is obviously the college education. So when we're looking from a budging cash flow standpoint, that 50, 25, 25 rule I talk about, where it's 50% of your take-home pay is to fixed costs, 25% of the take-home pay is to variable costs, and the other 25 is towards your savings or anything that helps increase your net worth. Saving for college literally becomes either a fixed or a variable cost, depending on how you want to categorize it in your own head, but it is not part of that savings. So your college investments and your normal investments pretend almost like there's like the Great Wall of China between them. They are two totally separate things that you need to make sure first and foremost that you are taking care of your retirement. We can put debt on the kid's college, clearly med school, right? But we can't do that for your retirement. So we have to make sure that your retirement is safe. It's secure. You're putting money towards it. You're doing all the right stuff. And if you have money left over, if you decide that you would like to be putting money away for your kids, I went through some of the numbers and, and kind of broke it out for you guys. It's a ton of money and don't feel horrible that if you can't do the whole amount, I'm just, I'm always blown away when I run these numbers and I hadn't run it for USD. And that, that gave the, the, from a behavioral standpoint, it really kind of hit me hard because that's where we went to school and I can't believe how expensive it is. I I'm telling you right now, I wish I could afford to send my kids there, but I can't, I can't afford, you know, we have two kids to be putting away 2,500 or $3,000 a month for college. It just isn't in the cards and that's unfortunate, but I, also think something is going to change between now and the time that they hit college in 14 years for my son or 15 years for my son. It's going to be very, very different. At least I hope. Otherwise they're going to have to take on some debt, you know, maybe go to a trade school, uh, community college for a couple of years, then transfer in, you know, there's tons of money out in scholarships and grants that people just aren't claiming do that, you know, explore all the free options as much as you can. There's a lot of money out there to help kids, but in reality, you're also going to probably have to take on some debt. I wish it was different, but that's just kind of how it is. So you've got your college investments that we discussed. And then we've obviously talked on the show a lot about normal investments, you know, making sure that you're investing at your risk tolerance based on your need and your ability to take risk Two very different things. I've chatted on it a few times on the show. I will be doing an entire show on risk tolerance and building out uh, in, an, in an IPS or investor pulse statement that will literally be talking about how to understand your risk and your risk tolerance and what you should be thinking about for that. And as we've been kind of in this massive bull market, uh, you know, we're sitting here in the end of 2019 and the markets have been chugging along for like 10 years straight. Uh, doing very, very well, most people that we talk with, their risk tolerance is a lot higher than it should be right now. So make sure you're having those conversations either with your financial planner or with your spouse or just doing a lot of research and understanding 
risk and your need and ability to take risk. So Brad, thank you so much for calling in on behalf of your listener. If you haven't heard Brad's show, check it out. The Physician's Guide Doctoring Killer Show he's running over there. Thank you so much for calling in. Really, really appreciate it. All right. So I'm sneaking back into the doctor's lounge, you know, of course, for some of that really good free coffee. And I figured I'd give you all one digestible tip that can increase your financial acumen and maybe even cause you to take some type of action with your finances, you know, as a thank you for that delicious beverage. So I know as a physician, you have a ton of medical terminology you have to memorize and digest. And when it comes to planning for your retirement, well, there's a lot of several terms you need to get familiar with. And I'm sure you hear quite a bit about a 401k plan offered by your employer. And many of you actually have a different type of retirement plan option, which is called a 403b plan and is more common if you're working in a public hospital or a government agency. So how do the 401k and the 403b accounts compare? Both allow you to actually deduct your contribution from your paycheck and both could potentially have some sort of match from your employer. Where they differ is the number of investment options usually. The 403b plans typically have a much smaller number of investment options for your funds, but please don't let this stop you from actually contributing. Just be aware as you're researching your investments. And fortunately, I've seen a lot of insurance companies kind of get into the 403b market and try to offer insurance products inside them and I am absolutely not a fan of this and quite sad that this is actually being offered. So please be careful with what you're doing with those tax deferred accounts. Regardless of which plan you have though, maximize your retirement funds and the options through your employer as early as possible in your, in your career is always a really smart thing to do. So we have a really short, quick community update pay attention. Big, big surprise coming out on Wednesday. So make sure to check out your podcast player on Wednesday to find out what it is. Have a great week. Cheers. Cheers.